Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new episode of Your Law Podcast. This is your host, Ozzy V. And with me as always on this program is the one with the knowledge, the one with the power, because knowledge is power. He is Andre Verdun, attorney at law. Ozzy, I'm so, so glad we're done with the election season. Oh, man. It's, <laughs> it, it's, it's an 18-month. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's no sport. I think, well, actually, maybe FIFA has the closest because World Cup happens every four years. To, you know, the two years leading up to they have qualifiers and stuff like that. But even then, it seems like there's breaks between that happening. But when it, man, every four years, it seems like. 18 months to two years before the actual X just it's just nonstop. But yeah, yeah I'm and glad 18 that we months reached. before it, you're kind of excited about it. But when it finally gets here, you just want it to stop. So it's over and the time has changed. So it feels like it's later than it really is. It definitely has. We have fallen back. And just a note on that election, we did go over the California propositions. Based on the results that we saw at the time that we were recording last Tuesday night, nothing really changed that we were predicting. So if you'd like to go back and review those propositions, you're more than welcome to do so. That episode is still up. That'd be your law pod episode eight. But this week, we're going to be talking about renter's rights when it comes to late fees in our uh, pre-show meeting. For lack of a better term, <laughs> we discussed was that a meeting? <laughs> it was uh, we meet. We met. We met, we discussed, so it was a, and it was before the show. So technically, I mean, this is me venturing into your world. Technically, it was a pre-show meet. It was a meeting, you know, that's okay. a pre-show meeting. Now, open my eyes to some things that I thought were fascinating when it comes to uh, late fees, in that they're essentially, the way we know them now, with the way that's in my lease, it's actually illegal. We can go into detail. Civil Code 1671 Clause D. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, 1671D is how we say it. But yeah, Clause D. Clause D. Uh, says, in cases described in subdivision, a provision in a contract liquidating damages for the breach of the contract is void, except that the parties to such a contract may agree therein upon an amount which shall be presumed to be the amount of damage sustained by a breach thereof when, from the nature of the case, it would be impracticable or extremely difficult to fix the actual damage. You can tell that was written over 100 years ago, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that was, was like Constitution speech. I think that was written in the 1800s. So that actually, uh, that was a minute in 1977, but I'm pretty sure the original version was back in the 1800s, and it sounds yes. like it. Absolutely. So, what that means in English, I, I think we got to start with what is a liquidated damages provision of a, of a contract. That would be I said clause, it actually should have said section. It's section D. Clauses mm -hmm. are in section. contracts, sections are in statutes. So Fair point. Going back to first year law school, we all learn about contracts, and a particular part of contract law is dealing with what we call liquidated damages. And the reason why you need a liquidated damages clause is because in contract law, you can't sue for emotional distress damages. You can't sue for pain and suffering. You can only sue for two types of damages. One is how much you paid or whatever benefit you would have received, or you can sue for what it would cost to basically cure a defect. For example, you paid somebody $1,000 to come to your party and sing, and they don't show up. You can sue for the $1,000 back, but you can't sue for the fact that they ruined your party. 
or you can hire somebody last second at $2,500 to come perform that service. And you can sue for the amount that you spend, the $2,500. But again, you can't sue for the fact that you really wanted the first singer to come or the stress that puts you under and trying to replace the original singer. So there are times, however, that when there's a breach of an agreement, that it would be difficult or impractical for the parties to determine what the breach would be. But they want to have in writing, have an agreement as to what the outcome will be if there's a breach of the agreement. And so under law, there's a limited ability to write into a contract what they call a liquidated damages clause. And this this is basically a clause that says, we both agree that if there's a breach of this agreement, X, X could be any number, that's a fair, reasonable effort to determine what the loss would be, X will be the payment that the breaching party owes the non-breaching party. So if it was a contract where you are hiring a singer to come and sing for a party and you pay that person $1,000, but you didn't know exactly what it would cost you damages-wise in order to replace that person, you could actually say, we both agree that if you don't show up and do what you're supposed to do, $2,000 or $3,000 is the amount we're going to fix as liquidated damages because we believe that that's a practical amount that could be suffered as damages if you don't appear at the party. So that's a that's not related to landlord-tenant cases or residential rental lease agreements. This is just, in general, what a liquidated damages clause is. Absolutely. So when it comes to a point that it is undeterminable, when that amount can't be determined, that is when the landlord can put in a base fee in their in the lease agreement. Correct. And so let me give you a background story, if I can just jump back for a minute to why this even matters or how I end up reading cases from the 1920s that kind of led me down a, a rabbit hole to get me to where we're at today. About five years ago, I got a call from a, well, he became a client, but at the time he was just a person that was seeking some help. And I lived in San Diego at the time. And so there's a lot of military people here in San Diego, and there's a lot of retired military folks. And this particular gentleman called me and said that he'd been living in this house for about six or seven years, and he received a fixed income because he's a a disabled military veteran. And because of that, he would have his bank send a check to the landlord every month to pay his rent. And even though he set that payment to go out on the first, the payment we're not talking about very many times, three or four times a year over the course of six years, this payment wasn't making it to the landlord to the fourth or the fifth. The landlord never notified my client of this fact. And in fact, apparently they weren't even aware of it. Fast forward six years and they're upgrading their software to a new system that would track payments of rent and deposits, and those types of things. And they discovered that a large number of their longtime renters had numerous late payments of rent that were paid, and there was no late fee accompanying those payments or ever paid pursuant to the lease agreement that required, I believe it was $150 per late fee if it was more than three days late. So in his circumstance, he got a letter from the landlord, and it said that based on the last six years, you owe us, it was a, it was a large number. It was a few thousand dollars. And if you don't make that payment with us uh, in the next, I think they gave him two weeks, 
So in the next two weeks, or make payment arrangements with us, then we're going to serve you the 3A notice to vacate. So at this point in time, I get this call, and I'm thinking in my mind, well, obviously late fees are legal, right? Mm. We all believe that. You believe late fees are legal. I believe late fees are legal. Judges, lawyers, everyone is under this conception that you're allowed to charge a late fee. Why do we believe that? Because they're in every single lease agreement, right? Right. I mean, I think every lease agreement that I've ever had says that you owe a percentage of the entire lease amount if your rent is late. Some, I've actually just got a new case where they said one day late. It's not a case where we're suing based on a late fee. I just, I happen to notice that. Some say two and the common is three. And I've seen some that even say five days. But what they all either say is that there's a set amount, which is usually between $75 and $150 or a percentage. So. And looking at his case, I was really interested in whether or not we could defend this gentleman from getting evicted, at least based on the fact that the late fees were so old. Under California contract law, if you're going to sue someone for breach of contract, you have four years from the day of breach to bring that claim. So my initial hope was that I could find some case law that supported that if you were going to sue a person for a late fee, that they would have to do that in four years, which a substantial amount of those fees were more than four years old, and that would at least allow me to reduce his obligation to the amount of fees that were less than four years old. Of course, that takes me to 1671D, and I think it's a good point, if you think, if you agree, to kind of break that language down into English and kind of talk about what the statute says. Yeah. So I, I went over the exactly what the language as written in 1800. <laughs> <laughs> had said, but basically getting at the root of it is that both parties, renter and tenant, need to and agree to an amount that would figure commensurate to the damage cause due to the late fee. Exactly. And if that amount is cannot be determined, then the landlord and only then can the landlord put in a base amount into the lease. But that that attempt that effort needs to be made first. It needs to be made first. Exactly. So the statute, one thing you got to remember when it comes to a statute, that these are written by the legislator and the courts are required to apply them the way they're written. So you'll see a lot of agreements that say, you agree that if we violate a statutory right, that you can't sue us for that. And the courts are not allowed to enforce that because you're not allowed in California to waive your statutory rights. And so this is a statutory right. You cannot waive this. And this Mm -hmm. has to be actually applied. So when it says a provision in a contract liquidating damages for the breach of a contract, they're talking about that liquidated damages clause as it relates to a landlord-tenant agreement. And it says they're void which means that you cannot have a liquidated damages clause in a residential agreement. They're void, except, as you mentioned, the parties to the contract agree that the amount shall be presumed to be the amount of damages that would actually be sustained for breach when, because of the facts of the case, it would be impractical or extremely difficult to fix the damages. So if you were to provide real context to that, you would actually have to come together and have a conversation. Yeah. And you'd have to make an effort to determine what the landlord would lose if the rent was one day late or two days late or three days late or five days late. 
But there has to be a meeting, what we call in law, the meeting of the mind. So this concept is brought home in the, there's a 2004 case. It's not a California Supreme Court case, but uh, the Orozco case actually said that when you are attempting to create a, a liquidated damages fee under 1671, that you actually have to have a discussion. You, you actually have to sit down and have a communication and the landlord needs to explain what injuries they may suffer if the rent's three days late. And then the tenant needs to work with the landlord to calculate what that amount can be. If they just throw their hands up in the air after trying and saying, we can't figure it out, then they can set an amount, but it still has to be tied to what the landlord would actually receive in the form of damages. Mm-hmm. I see. Now, in lease agreements, it actually does have the language where it actually does have a set fee or percentage, and it says, you agree to pay this fee, but that that's actually not valid. It would be, it's void because the conversation never happened, if, if that's the case, right? Correct. And so it goes even further than that. If, as people are listening to this and they're, they're actually interested in this subject, because I kind of feel like this is nerdy law stuff, but... At least I find it fascinating. You there's you people, there, there's like, I don't know, I don't know about the people out there, but you know, I, I, what my lease agreement late fee is, is in the triple digits, you know? Yeah. And, and so I, I think that can pique anybody's interest. Absolutely. I, I had a client with a $10,000 a month rent and a, like a 20% late fee. So yeah, their, their late fee was huge and we were able to get that taken care of as well. but. I bring that up because if everyone was to run to their lease and look it up and say, oh, damn it, I can't sue. Because what they're probably reading is the parties agree that it would be impractical or extremely difficult to fix actual damages. Therefore, the parties stipulate that either 10% of the lease or 20% of the lease or the $75 or whatever it is, is a will be the lay fee based on what we believe the actual damages would be. So does that, does that work? I know you're, I know you're uh, not a lawyer, but you know, I am a law professor. And so I'm going to pose this to you like you were my law students. What's wrong with just using boilerplate language in a lease agreement to get around 1671D? It's the fact that there was no conversation no effort made prior to that that clause being made it seems like that that clause would need to be made after a meeting was was had between the renter and the landlord having that having that made before having that just as a template in all contracts and just given to all renters basically implies that not only does that meeting between the landlord and the tenant not happen but there's no intent for the meeting between the landlord and the tenant to happen Yeah. And I think that even more than just having the language in there, because, you know, a lot of contracts have language and then you have to fill in the blanks. And if you don't, it doesn't apply. The fact that the amount is already preset and it's the same amount for every single contract, that proves, and it has so far in every case I brought uh, on this issue, it proves that there's no discussion. Because if, if there was a discussion and a compromise between the parties to set a fair amount, you would think it'd be different, at least sometimes. But typically what we we get the landlord to admit in discovery is, no, it's a pre-printed amount and it's in every contract. And they try to rely on the fact that, well, they signed the contract and they read it. But it goes back to what 
I was saying before, because it's a statutory right, it has to be strictly enforced pursuant to the statute. And the statute requires a meet and confer, requires an effort to actually determine what the damages would be. And then after that effort's engaged in, it failed. And therefore, now you can actually affix a set amount. But also, case law says that if the amount that you set turns out to be more than what the landlord can show that they were damaged, then it's presumptively an illegal late fee because a late fee is supposed to be an approximate approximation of what the actual damages are. So if you're able to show that, for example, that the landlord only suffered you know, $18, $20 in damages, but you have a $300 late fee, then that late fee is going to be found to be illegal because it's going to be shown that it is not connected to the actual harm suffered by the landlord. And then just to circle back to a point you made earlier that in with contracts, you cannot sue for pain and suffering. Like you brought up the example with the singer and the party, you can't sue for emotional distress or anything like that. You can only sue for financial damages. So correct. just circling back to that point that this is between the leasee and the owner. Now, one question that I did have that, that I, that was just kind of brewing. So, okay, we, this clause is in there and you're looking for a place you like the place, but then you read over and you see this, like, let's just say I go look for a place and then I say, Hey, you know what? I know that clause D or am I saying <laughs> in statute? Yeah, I bring this all D up. Stat- lease agreement of the lease and all this we need to have an agreement to determine what the financial damages would be to uh, figure out an accurate late fee. And then if, can they tell me to take a hike and be like, okay, well take it or leave it. What they happens could. at that point? I, I think that that would be really good evidence after the fact. If you, if you were to have that conversation, they said, no, I'll take a hike. It's going to be $150. Yeah. Well, how are you basing that number? Well, that's our fee. That would be really good evidence. If you were to pay a late fee and sue for it back later, or if you're trying to bring a declaratory relief action to strike the clause after you signed it, that'd be really good evidence that the landlord's violating 1671. And I've never had that happen before. I mean, I've even signed lease agreements uh, after the fact that I knew about this without challenging it. But it would be really good evidence that there's no uh, 1671 obligations being met. Because when you attempted to do it, they just said, no, you either pay this amount or we'll just find another renter. So that actually could play really well if someone was Got to bring it, it up and you know, create a note of it and, and then be able to refer back to it later. So what more like the advice should be if you got the place and they say, no, it's going to be this, take it or leave it. Just make a note of it, sign the lease anyway. And then if it, ever, if it ever comes up, you try to get it back. Yeah. Uh, all right. Now you mentioned also referring back to the pre-show meeting that in Knight v. Marks, it was determined that the late fee can only be the amount owed plus interest. That's the only thing that can be charged. Yeah. And Knight v. Marks is actually the case that I found that kind of brought all this ahead for me because when I came across that, I was kind of surprised what the findings were. Also very interesting is that Knight v. Marks is a 1920 case, California Supreme Court. And it's the only case that I'm aware of where the Supreme Court ever talked about the legality of a late fee. But what Knight v. Mark says is that when we're just talking about a late fee, just a person that's paid their their rent three days late or four days late or five days late, 
that it cannot be impractical to or difficult to fix a late fee. They said the late fee is simply the amount owed plus interest. And of course, in California law, the, the max you can get for breach of contract, as far as interest goes, is 10% a year. So we're talking about less than 1% a month interest. Mm. And then you break that up on a daily basis. We're talking about a very small amount of money. Now, we talked earlier about the Roscoe case. Mm-hmm. And there the court, and this is not a Supreme Court case. So this almost sounds like it's in conflict with the California Supreme Court case. But I don't think that it is. That case says that, well, the amount of damage that a landlord suffers is not just limited to the amount due plus interest. It could be also administrative fees. It could be the amount of money that administratively is undertaken when a fee is paid late to update records or to collect these fees. And I think Orozco is right on that. Because of that case, I've created a series of questions that I always pose to a landlord in determining if their late fee is lawful. I always start with, what do you do when somebody pays their rent late? Do you make phone calls? Do you send out letters? And what you find is that if we're just talking about a few days, they don't do anything. They just simply wait for you to pay the rent. Usually by a week, they may actually contact you, put a three-day pay or quit notice on your door. But my experience in all the cases that we took, rent's only late two or three days. And there's never, in the cases that I've handled so far, even a notice put on the door. So once we determine that, okay, well, there's nothing done to collect the fee, well, what happens when the late fee comes in? Well, I get these descriptions of people having to open up a book and update a a fee or go into a computer software and change unpaid to paid. What you usually will find out is that whatever procedure is done in a real estate office, if there's a property manager or even the landlord themselves, usually it takes five or 10 minutes. And so there may be some administrative fees, but it's typically for five or 10 minutes of work. And then through my efforts so far, what I typically find is that a person who is a property manager makes about $15 an hour. So when you take that $15 an hour and you divide it up into tenths, you find really the actual damages is probably $1.50 plus a couple cents a day for interest. So when you're talking about a $150 late fee or a $300 late fee, you start to see where Roscoe says there has to be some type of correlation between the amount that's actually lost and the amount that's decided on for the late fee. There has to be some correlation. There's no correlation there. We're talking about hundreds of times the actual damages. But what's also very interesting is, and I never alert them to this, You know, they may be alerted now if they're listening. I, I never tell them what the big point is at the end, because after I go through all these questions with them to show that their actual damages are actually very little, is I always ask them at the end, did you discuss any of these uh, issues prior to signing the lease agreement? Because think about it, 1671 requires you to have a discussion about what the actual damages are. And what's odd is if you look at most lease agreements, they actually say that the lay fee is a percent or a dollar amount, and it usually says plus interest. If you look at it, it actually says that. At least mm. most of the ones that I've looked at. So when they say that, you could even take the interest out when you're talking about the late fee because it's whatever the fee is plus what a Knight B. Mark says that you're entitled to. So once that 
we've established that the late fees are far higher than what the actual damages are. I always bring it back to, well, couldn't you have had this conversation before you signed the lease? And if you have, what you would have learned was your damages are like a dollar. It's a matter of somebody opening up a program (laughs) and marking unpaid to paid. Yeah, I I actually had one person, one case, and this is one of the leases where they didn't have interest already included in. They said, oh, well, we're entitled to interest. And, you know, that takes effort and time to calculate. And so I put a pin in front of the person and I said, well, go ahead and calculate the interest. Did some very simple math. Came back with the, for one day, it was one day late. And I said, okay, how long did that take? Oh, about 40 seconds. What else do you do? Well, that's it. I'm not really sure why that requires, you know, $175 of administrative time. So what you start to find when you look at what 1671D requires, and when you put together the different cases, what you truly find is every late fee that I've ever seen is illegal. Because a late fee is only legal... If it's about two or three dollars plus interest, and interest can only be a few pennies a day, unless you're Blockbuster Video, then it might be commensurate. Well, of Blockbuster course, Video, I just dated myself. <laughs> <laughs> you did, but the thing with Blockbuster, and you bring up a good point actually, so I should address this. This does not apply to commercial real estate. Oh, this is residential real estate. And there's a reason why the legislator treated it differently, because they did not want landlords to be using late fees to turn a profit. Mm -hmm. They were willing to allow landlords to recoup actual losses through a late fee. But the prohibition that's being created by 1671D is a landlord turning a profit using late fees. And so based on that policy that's being created by 1671, and again, this carpers back to what I said earlier, if you can show that there's a profit, that it's actually a portion of, a significant portion of the landlord's profits is the collection of late fees, then it becomes really easy to demonstrate that this late fee is not a liquidated damages clause, but a penalty a damages penalty, whether you call it emotional distress or whatever, but it's a penalty that's not permissible under contract law. Mm. Okay. So we've discussed, I guess, the pre, the during case, and now let's go to the person, oh man, I've paid X amount of late fees. Like in the past year, what can I do now? What can, what can be done now if it's, if it's in the rear view mirror, if, if it's in the past, the, the agreement has been signed already and any, pay, any late fees have been paid, what's the best thing that someone can do? That's a really good question. And one of the reasons why it's a good question is it could be really difficult to find relief if you're one of the people that's been paying late fees and the late fees aren't legal. And the reason why I say that for is because typically if you're talking about having paid, you know, even five, six, a thousand dollars in late fees, you know, the typical lawyer charges $400 an hour, at least in San Diego. So you certainly can't hire a lawyer to go get your late fees back. It's just, there's Mm -hmm. not enough money there. So another option, and the option that's usually chosen when people are only out a few hundred dollars or even a few thousand dollars is to go to small claims court. The problem with small claims court, you're not dealing with judges. 
You don't get discovery. You don't get the ability to really develop a case in front of a a small claims court judge. And really, they're not even judges. When you go to small claims court, you're typically dealing with what we call a judge pro tem. A, a judge pro tem is typically a lawyer who has a law practice. And these lawyers come in a couple days a year and they sit on the, on the small claims panel and they hear these small claim cases. So these aren't even magistrate judges or what we call a California commissioner. These aren't judges by any means. These are lawyers that volunteer part-time. And even when I'm before a judge, their knee-jerk reaction is always, Mr. Verdun, I don't know why you're here. You're trying to tell me that a late fee is illegal? I've been paying late fees my whole life when I was a renter or as a landlord. I collect them. How could these be illegal? So when you walk into a small claims court where the judge doesn't really want to hear about law, they just want to hear about what happened, they're probably going to quickly throw your case out when you start talking about how your late fee is illegal and you want your late fee money back. So if you were to go into regular court, you have one of two options. One is to do what they call a declaratory relief action, which is a, a lawsuit where you're asking the judge to make a legal determination and find that a particular provision in a contract between the parties is unlawful. And if you were able to develop that, you may get a judge to agree with you. But the problem is, again, all that does is strike that provision out from your lease. And so you still don't get the money back. Mm. I'll tell you how I dealt with it in the case that I gave you an example of. First of all, obviously, I took this case initially pro bono. And, and the reason for that was, is we're talking about a disabled vet living in California. Sorry to a, cut you off. Can you describe maybe what taking case pro bono is just in case? Yes. Someone's not familiar. Absolutely. So initially, I took that case with what we call pro bono, another Latin word. And pro bono basically means that a lawyer, and we're all encouraged to do it. I probably do it more than I should. But we take cases basically to help someone with a cause versus to make money. We don't accept money for pro bono cases. So when he first came to me and he's telling me about the fact that the landlord is trying to take a couple grand from him or a victim... I made a decision, look, this is probably not going to be profitable for my office, but I'm going to take the case anyway to help him. And so my initial effort, like I said, was just to limit the late fees the last four years and then to try to negotiate a payment plan for the rest. When I started doing this research, I found out that these late fees were all illegal, all of them, including the ones that he actually paid because he actually did pay one or two late fees at some point in time as well. So. We brought a lawsuit under a code that I'm sure we're going to talk about more broadly later down the line, but it's Business and Professions Code 17200. That statute allows you to do one of two things. One, it allows you to sue for money that someone else has that's yours. It's called disgorgement. And it also allows you to seek what's called public injunctive relief. And what that basically means is that if you've been injured and you know other people are being injured in the same way, you can sue to have a remedy put in place for everyone else that's being damaged in the same way that you are. Essentially like a class action? It is like a class action, but it's in my mind, for my case, it is better because it doesn't actually create a class. So oh, okay. it is one person suing another person, but the remedy is to actually return money to the 
all the people who are aggrieved. And so where it's different as a class action is class action requires you to find a plaintiff and then you have to certify a class, which requires different, there has to be enough people, what we call numerality, and there has to be a common commonality among the different claims. And it's, it's got a lot of requirements. And then if you meet all those, you can try to get a class action and typically it gets removed to federal court because that's where uh, most class actions are. There's a law that allows you to remove all class actions to federal court. The benefit of a public injunctive relief case is you're suing on your own behalf as well as other people. But because you don't have to go through the effort to certify a class, they typically happen a lot quicker. Mm. So once I did the research that we just went through and I realized that there was a right to a remedy under 17200, we brought that case and we demanded as relief to settle the case, not only that my client be reimbursed the two late fees that he paid and that the landlord agree not to try to collect any of the other late fees that they were trying to claim, but we required that they reduce his late fee from $175 after two days to zero. So he was really happy with that because now, even if the rent was paid late, the only remedy that the landlord could use in order to get payment is to put a three-day payer quit notice on the door only for the amount of rent. And then if after three days, the tenant doesn't pay that, then they could proceed with an unlawful detainer, or as we know in street lingo, an eviction. But we didn't stop there because we brought the public relief action. We were able to require that the landlord reduce every single late fee and every single contract of every single renter from $175 to zero. We were also able wow. to obtain an agreement from this landlord that unless the state of the law changes, they will never include a late fee in a future agreement, which is still in effect today. Wow. You think that was all we did? Oh, we did more. The <laughs> landlord had to return every single late fee that they collected over the last four years, which is the statute of limitations on a 17200 claim. They had to re reimburse over $15,000. Holy Toledo. So that's kind of the remedy. And so if you're talking about making a lot of money, this isn't going to be one of those cases. It's, uh, we take these cases in my office to this day. If someone comes up to us and says, we paid a late fee and, and it was within the last four years, we will take that case. We sometimes make money. Sometimes we don't. But what we're always able to do is get the client his late fees back and Oftentimes, depending on the particular case, we will in, insist on there being a provision that other people are reimbursed their money and also a change in the agreement. You know, the one thing that I tell people when they call here is if you're going to sue your landlord, it's typically better to do it if you're moving. You certainly can sue your landlord while you're living there if you you're not one of the people that would feel uncomfortable with that. And of course, there's laws in California that prevent retaliation. And then if the landlord was attempting to retaliate against you, which would be uh, after you sued them, they try to evict you or they try to raise your rent or reduce services, this would create a separate cause of action. Those cases are more profitable. And we definitely take those. So really, I wanted to present this because I really think that a lot of people are struggling to pay rent right now mm. and they're getting their rent a few days late. And the landlords are demanding the payment of late fees, 
even during a pandemic, even during the situation we're all going through right now. And so more than ever, I think it's really important for people to understand that these fees that you're being charged or you're struggling to pay probably are not legal. So you do have the option to challenge that in small claims court. You have the the option to call a lawyer. Uh, again, I don't know that many of them are going to be willing to accept a case like this, but I can tell you that if you call my office, uh, we certainly would take them. Um, and, and there may be others. The bottom line takeaway is don't lose sleep at night if at the end of the day you feel like these late fees are, are going to be the difference of you eating, being able to feed your family or pay other bills because they're just, they're not legal and you have the ability to stop them. Well, at the end of the day, it's somebody, I mean, when you look at it, I think what with what we've discussed here, it's hard to argue that a profit is not being made. Like at Correct. this point, you know, in contract law, you can only sue for financial damages. And if the financial debt, like there's, there's nothing that can be proved to say, well, let me use my imagination. If somebody was on a salary of $1,500 an hour and it took them 15 minutes to make an adjustment, then yeah, $150 may actually make sense. But I have yet to meet a property manager that makes $1,500 an hour. That's a job that I would like. I, I would quit my job as a lawyer and sign up at <laughs> But then, of course, is that really good faith and fair dealing? So that's a right, whole other right, question. Right. But no, you're right. I mean, no landlord's going to be paying their employees enough to incur a fee that would substantiate the type of fees we're talking about here. So for that reason, I kind of harpen back to what I said before many, many times. If you show me a lease agreement with a late fee in it, I'll show you an illegal late fee. I got you. So... Ladies and gentlemen, if you had any questions about what we've discussed, you would send the questions over to yourlawpod at gmail.com. Once again, that's yourlawpod at gmail.com. So feel free to send a question. We could maybe discuss it next week. Did you have any final thoughts before we head out? I mean, it was definitely eye-opening for me having this conversation. I'm sure it was eye-opening for a lot of people. But anything you wanted to add? Before we say goodbye. Yeah. I mean, you asked me my opinion now. So I always like sharing my opinion sure. versus just what the law is. And the law prohibits landlords from making a profit on late fees. When we talk about a landlord that had to reimburse $15,000 for collecting late fees over the course of four years, what that tells me, there was a lot of profit being made there. And if you're a landlord, I encourage you to reevaluate your lease agreements and, and get ahead of this because if someone like me comes along, we're going to do everything we can to ensure that your landlords are in compliance with the law. And for tenants, I urge you to stand up. I, I urge you to fight back because we're in a housing crisis here in California and the law allows landlords to set rent at any amount that they want with, with very few exceptions. As we talked about when we were talking about the proposition that failed, that attempted to create some type of rent control in California. If the landlord wants to make a profit, they need to build that into their to the rent amount. And, and that kind of comes back to the profiteering conduct that I often see with security deposits, which is also something that's very, very uh, important to me and something that we've taken a, a strong stand against here at my office and stopping landlords from abusing the right to make deductions of security deposits. Much the same way, the law does not allow landlords to make a profit through their late fees. And so I urge you to stand up. If you're the victim of these late fees, you can 
show the landlord the statutes that we've provided here. You can cite the cases that we talked about here. You can just Google them. They'll come up. And, and I will uh, actually have the cases in the show description in case anybody can reference if they need that to reference. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And landlords get to make a, an obscene profit, whether right or wrong. And I'm sure landlords think it's right. And I'm sure a lot of renters think it's wrong. But right or wrong, they're able to make a, a healthy profit through just the rental of their property. And for them to build in fees in ways that the legislator said they cannot isn't right. And so I, for one, am standing on the front lines to try to fight this. And so I'm certainly hoping that we reach people who are in that category and that they are able to use this information to prevent padding the bottom lines of landlords in a way that the legislator specifically prohibited. A hundred percent. I mean, if I can't make money gambling illegally, <laughs> why should landlords be able to make a profit with late fees, right? It's all fair. But anyway, uh, if you would like more information about Andre Verdun's law office, you can go to facebook.com forward slash Verdun law, or you can send an email to office at verdunlaw.com. We've had your final thought on your opinion of our topic today. Next week, we're going to cover security deposit. You mentioned it. There's a teaser, so to speak, when you mentioned it. Uh, <laughs> and next week, it will now feel like a sequel because we set up the stage for the late fees. As mentioned, definitely eye-opening for a lot of people. Security deposit should be fun next week. Ladies and gentlemen, he is Andre Verdun, attorney at law, and I'm Ozzy V, and we'll see you next week here on your law podcast. <laughs> <laughs>